The Judiciary Committee will come to order. Director Mueller, we are grateful that you are here to explain your investigation and findings. Having reviewed your work, I believe anyone else would engage in the conduct described in your report would have been criminally prosecuted. Your work is vitally important to this committee and the American people because no one is above the law. Your report, for those who have taken the time to study it, is methodical and it is devastating. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. There will be a time when Trump is not president. Imagine. Look, some days I'm okay going along, trying to fight Yasha Monk's good fight, keep my head in the game. And sometimes I feel like I walk into a manhole, I I mean maintenance hole, and I can't get out. Racist, rapist, Trump is the president. The rule of law is in shambles. No one gives a shit about Trump's criminal syndicate or the Russians nuking democracy. And I'm having nightmares about Gulf Streams and Jeffrey Epstein's pedophile island. Yesterday, half of the day was like that. I spent the morning in that maintenance hall. But then, you know, anything can give a person a reason to hope. And a small crack and then a full ray of light came into my manhole, I mean maintenance hall, yesterday. And his name was Adam Schiff. Schiff's opening address to the House Intelligence Committee brought me to tears of hope. I'm even going to try to deliver it to you now to relive some of its power. So here's Schiff talking to Robert Mueller. Your report, for those who've taken the time to study it, is methodical and it is devastating, for it tells the story of a foreign adversary's sweeping and systematic intervention in a close U.S. political election. That should be enough to deserve the attention of every American, as you well point out. But your report tells another story as well. For the story of the 2016 presidential election is also a story about disloyalty to country, about greed, and about lies. Your investigation determined that the Trump campaign, including Trump himself, knew that a foreign power was intervening in our election and welcomed it, built Russian meddling into their strategy, and used it. Disloyalty to country, those are strong words, but how else are we going to describe a presidential campaign which did not inform the authorities of a foreign offer of dirt on their opponent, which did not publicly shun it or turn it away, but which instead invited it, encouraged it, and made full use of it? That disloyalty may not have been criminal. Constrained by uncooperative witnesses, the destruction of documents, and the use of encrypted communications, your team was not able to establish each of the elements of the crime of conspiracy beyond a reasonable doubt, so not a provable crime in any event. But I think maybe something worse. A crime is the violation of a law written by Congress, but disloyalty to country violates the very obligation of citizenship, our devotion to a core principle on which our nation was founded that we the people, not some foreign power that wishes us ill, will decide who shall govern us. That's not the whole of Adam Schiff's speech. And yeah, you got to listen to him actually do it to get the full effect. If you want to hear it, we have put audio from yesterday's hearings with Robert Mueller on the feed. So tune in. My guest today is my political running buddy, Jed Sugarman. He's a professor at Fordham Law with a BA, JD, and PhD in history from Yale. His dissertation won a million awards, too. I didn't even know dissertations could win awards, so that's fine for Jed. Maybe my dissertation was just more specialized. Anyway, welcome, Jed. Thanks for having me back. This is sort of the perfect day for us to get together. The producer of this show, whom you know, Melissa Kaplan, sent me a prep doc, which says Mueller, 
Mueller, Mueller, Mueller, Mueller, more Mueller, something else. As topics A through yep. Z today. So yesterday we heard the, you know, Sphinx-like, elusive Robert Mueller talk. And I think that there were a lot of surprises in the day. I don't agree with people calling it a great disappointment or a disaster for Democrats. But I think that there were a lot of things that surprised even you and me. Yeah, absolutely. I really admire how forthright you've been about being critical of Mueller, critical of the Mueller report for having some legal errors in it. And then we got to see him. Did that change how you thought about the report? I guess my first question. Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I think there was certainly a buzz about the morning, and then there was a very different buzz about the afternoon. And I think you and I can probably talk about what some of the reasons why the morning and the afternoon just seemed so different. I mean, it was basically the morning was just so many people on social media and openly on on TV worrying about Mueller's health. Yeah. And what was remarkable was that by the afternoon, he had so much more energy and focus uh, and command of the material. And I, it, I think that's, just, that's more than just a pep talk that happened between the morning and the afternoon. What I speculate now is that it's worth stepping back and recognizing just how broad and deep this inquiry went. And it was too big for any one person under any conditions. And yes. so now it just seems the, the obvious now is apparent. I mean, we should have realized this before, but Mueller focused on some things more than others. And I yeah. think you and I, this, this, we talked about this immediately after the report went public back in late April, that we both talked about how Mueller um, was, was writing this report as much as a counterintelligence report as it was a prosecutorial document. Others have made the same observation along the way before the report was ever issued. I mean, Asha Rangappa always emphasized this element of the investigation. And now it just seems so obvious that that's what Mueller was more focused on as a veteran of the Cold War and of the and as a Vietnam veteran and hero. He converted the FBI from law enforcement to counterterrorism after 9-11. And that signature, I mean, that is a lot of mental heavy lifting. I mean, if we pause for a second on his cognitive processes, this is a man who simply has managed a huge amount of not just detail, but deep philosophical thought about the direction of the country, the direction of law enforcement, the direction of the Department of Justice. And he's coming up against the limits of what we all can understand which is expressed in the report with some confusion around the status of the president vis-a-vis the law, and also what he maybe in his later days, he's almost 75, can manage. And the confusion, I just have to frankly say, I did find very sad. We want someone to bring clarity, and he didn't bring clarity yesterday. Let's put it that way. Yes. I mean, I, I would say that he was far clearer and had more command in the afternoon. I will say, I have been very critical of the Mueller report. I've spent a lot of my summer writing about the errors and uh, the legal errors, the inter- the factual interpretation errors. Mm-hmm. And I think what struck me, I mean, exactly how you, how you just framed it, watching in the morning, I felt sad and I honestly felt a little bit guilty that I didn't recognize, and that's not just about recognizing someone who may be having challenges with memory or such. It was, I think, at that moment, I also realized that Mueller has his name on the report, but it was a Mm -hmm. team effort. 
And it's hard to say that the Mueller report made errors when I'm sure at this point I now have to acknowledge that there it's that other people focused on other parts of the report and made those errors. But Mueller's name gets associated with all of them. Mm-hmm. And given and frankly, given how many significant, shocking legal errors are in this report, I think it's unfortunate that Mueller has to be the name associated with them. And we don't know which people on the team made these major legal errors. I want to go to those errors right now to give listeners background because you have written astutely and I think courageously about the errors. And in some ways, even if Robert Mueller turns out to be a mortal man, he's he's not an invincible god. And, you know, we knew that, but it was hard if he was going to speak for the law on this and the potential with the Republican, the balance. I wanted him to be just Solomonic, just infallible. And clearly, he's a man. But one of the things that that suggested to me anyway, is that he's also not a conniving party hack who was in the pocket of Hillary Clinton. I mean, all the things the Republicans were suggesting seemed ridiculous. There was not just a recessive part to Mueller, but there's a certain sweetness to him. You wanted to kind of protect him. And he certainly didn't seem like he was out to do something twisted or evil. I mean, it was this, the Republicans, nothing could stick to him. I mean, if they called out Joseph Mifsud one more time, <laughs> I, you know, I, I was just going to say, is that really all they have? I mean, how many Americans know who Joseph Mifsud is? Four? Seven? I mean, <laughs> you know, and, yeah. that, and then suddenly Natalia Veselnitskaya. I mean, there were so many distractions, and they ended up against his sweet and slightly doddering way that lots of us can recognize from 80-year-old, 75-year-old relatives. They looked, I thought, rabid. That was very bad for their side. Yes, the level of disrespect and animosity that just... I, I just don't know how, I mean, I would love to know how that played with anybody in the middle on this. I mean, I, I, I just, I imagine that that was all targeted to an audience of one. Um, you know, I think these congressmen were, when they were uh, uh, ripping into Mueller with such disrespect, that was playing to Trump, uh, who they, they knew he was watching. I think Adam Schiff said something like that, that there's, you know, a guy down the road, he sort of makes him seem like Jabba the Hutt or Smaug or or Sauron. <laughs> Some combination of Jabba the Hutt and Sauron it seems exact seems to be <laughs> seems to be right. On that point though, Virginia, I do think it's at least worth noting and, and it's you know it's a it's a valid question that now becomes, I think, a bigger concern that it that so much of Mueller's stature uh, or so much of the validity of the of the Mueller report was a perception that Mueller had command over every piece of this team and over every piece of this investigation. And mm-hmm. so to the extent that there was a, a perception that the team uh, had, a, had a variety of political leanings, but that Mueller would keep them all in line, I think there is a valid talking point. Or it has to be noted that that impression does not survive yesterday. He clearly yeah. delegated enormous pieces of the investigation. Of course, he had to. But I do think it was a win for the Republican talking point that the Mueller team of, quote, 13 angry Democrats, that's never been a fair accusation. But to the extent that people had said, 
Well, but look at Mueller, the rock, the rock ribbed conservative Republican who hold them in all in line. That image took a big hit. So my buddy Karen Schwartz um, always says that the new question of are you a Ravenclaw or Slytherin person is, are you a volume one person or a volume two person? Are you interested in the the counterintelligence and criminal conspiracy part of the report or the obstruction of justice part of the report? So which are you? I don't think I've ever truly known. Right. We may have talked about this or maybe I thought about this after we first talked in April when the report came out. Um, I'm a volume one person in part because... Volume one has so much in it in terms of the facts, and it is the basis for why we should care about volume two politically. I mean, yes. we also found out yesterday what which volume person Mueller is. Mueller is yes, obviously a volume one person. And I think also America is a volume one person, right? Ah, that's interesting, because I, I felt like pop culture was all about obstruction, because you could follow the obstruction of justice case at home, that you could see some of it on Twitter, a lot of it was reported, and the first volume has so many Russian names. And also, we couldn't do it ourselves, the first one. That's why I feel like the first part... The part about Prigozhin, the part about, um, you know, the part about the hack, the details about Guccifer. I mean, that's the kind of thing that you say, I'm glad we have this investigative body. That stuff is so fascinating. And I'm sorry, but as powerful as Franklin Foran, David Cord and whoever else are, none of them could do that kind of reporting. Oh, absolutely. I mean, also keep in mind, volume two, were we were we really shocked by what volume two found. I mean, yes, the journalists had course. basically reported most of that, that, you know, that Trump had ordered Don McGahn to fire Trump. And, you know, how many times, I mean, just a side note here, how many times did the judici- House Judiciary Democrats have to repeat that one allegation? I mean, it is bad, but they went down that rabbit hole uh, uh, six different times and I'm sorry, it was already out in the public sphere before the report came out. No, that is not going to move the needle, partly because you're sitting there seeing Robert Mueller at the table. He never got fired. I mean, if Trump really, really wanted to fire Mueller, he could have done it by a tweet. He could have done it by uh, the, the Trump's mini-me, Stephen Miller. You know, I mean, yeah. it, it basically, I think America understands that Trump has a temper, he is irascible, he is impulsive, and yet, nevertheless, Mueller is sitting there having delivered his report. It, it ta- It's still criminal, but it takes a lot of force out of the claim that this was obstruction of justice when it was so inept and ultimately failed to, to stop Mueller or really... Inter- I mean, I also want to say there are all these conspiracy theories about Barr having somehow stopped Mueller or gotten to Mueller... And after yesterday, I think we just have to say this is Mueller. I mean, Mueller wrote, you know, Mueller wanted to defend the report he submitted. He did the job. And, you know, Barr did lots of bad things. But I think we need to set aside the conspiracy theories that somehow Mueller had to write what he did because of external threat. I mean, he was able to do other things. But let me also explain, I think, why volume one is so important politically. I mean, let me be clear. 
I think people realize this. You can obstruct justice even if there is no crime. Of course. Right, obviously. And I think volume one shows at least a, a, a lot of civil violations that one could also try and hide and cover up. But ultimately, politically, the obstruction in volume two only captures the American imagination if it's part of a deeper story of criminal conduct. That didn't have to be just Trump. I've argued volume one actually shows, even if Mueller failed to conclude it, that the Trump campaign committed crimes mm-hmm. and other campaign violations. And mm-hmm. uh, and that's why volume one, I think, is important to dig into that. And, and frankly, the Democrats just did not do a great job of trying to make volume one uh, uh, get to that stat, get to that level. And certainly, I think it was a major error by the Judiciary Committee to, to emphasize volume two and obstruction especially given the timing of the day. I mean, wouldn't it have made sense to do volume one and two in the morning, you know, talk about Russia and then obstruction to have one set up the other and then let the intelligence committee dig in on Russia and Trump? It was a major error. I mean, yes, I totally agree with you, except that I should just, you know, get Adam Schiff's face tattooed on me and be done with it. But, you know, I'm (laughs) I'm I'm a fan fan of his. And I, you know, I even went so far as to just post a tweet, a thread of all of his opening remarks in the second hearing, because there was a kind of Lincolnian rhetoric to it. I finally felt like I was able to sort of cry, you know, for the Republic and also for the return of hope that we might do something about it. You know, it's interesting when Devin Nunes closed the House investigation into Russian interference that Schiff had been in charge of. He wrote a letter that was also heartbreaking to me about it. I mean, I don't know if everyone feels this way, but the reason to end on volume one is that that's what we're looking to the future about. So 2020 election security, I mean, this is the 9-11 commission report style part of it, right? Which is like, you can object to Trump. Ultimately, this is not political, at least to me, to some citizens, to Adam Schiff. It's that we are under attack. We were under attack. And now we are under attack. And that's because we have an incredible hole blown open in our fortress that was blown open from the inside by Donald Trump. And it has a big red carpet on it. But I I think it's important. First of all, that's not just Adam Schiff. That's what Mueller cared about. Yes, exactly. When he said, and all Americans should be concerned with this. I think that's why Schiff and Mueller were so in sync. I mean, that was sort of a lovely duet when he questioned him in the five minutes. And not to get into talking about it as theater, because that's been soundly decried when (laughs) Chuck Todd and everyone did it yesterday. I mean, the substance of volume one is just jaw-dropping. And we know it all happened. And now Trump, I mean, he hasn't even made sounds about election security. Let's take a step back. You know, there is Mm -hmm. someone else who is at fault for enabling all of the same conduct to recur in 2020. And that's Robert Mueller and company. I mean, these are the errors that Robert Mueller had an opportunity to indict Manafort and Gates on felony criminal coordination and the failure to do so, plus the report blows open a huge loophole in campaign finance regulations on opposition research by saying it basically it's all covered by the First Amendment. Let's dig into this for a minute, because given that Mueller cares about election security and Russia, and let's also say Mueller, you and I might agree 
that one of the, perhaps a bigger threat to America than Donald J. Trump is Vladimir Putin um, and and general election meddling because you know Trump might lose an election and go away, but Putin is going to be with us for who knows how long. And it, this was a lost opportunity by a law enforcement official and team to lay down the law and the rule of law about campaign coordination, and they failed. We've had people speculate, Anthony Cormier in particular, on this show that if Mueller was in, indeed doing some kind of counterterrorism roll-up or counterintelligence roll-up, that he really wanted those people, he really wanted the Kremlin, and that Manafort, for some reason, Mueller seems to be unable to confidently say that Kalimnik is a spy that works for the Kremlin, that Prigozhin, head of the IRA, is so close to Putin as to be sort of indistinguishable from the state. And so is Deripaska uh, in particular. I think he said something like, I am the state, one of those. <laughs> Why Mueller makes that distinction, he was so careful. He always says Kalimnik has, quote, ties to Russian intelligence. And the extension to that is at some point with Manafort, close to Kalimnik, we heard about that, that relationship relationship yesterday. At some point in the investigation, I thought, why aren't we just investigating the Trump campaign's Manafort ties? Because Manafort himself represents the right-wing part of the Ukraine and the Kremlin and is so close to this, and he's on the payroll, and he works with Kalimnik. So he himself seems like a Russian agent and, you know, and a Kremlin agent. And why Mueller is so reticent and overly cautious about making those connections. I mean, I don't know if anyone, he even did it yesterday, just making yeah. it clear, ah, we can't say Deripaska is, you know, a Kremlin agent. It was a straight up legal error. I mean, if you're if you're investigating Paul Manafort and his frame of mind, the report states that Rick Gates told Manafort, I think Kalimnik is a spy. Let me just take a step back. I mean, it was a legal error about how Mueller failed to indict Manafort for, I think, a, a legal reason and a factual reason. The legal reason is the biggest error in volume one, which is that, and let me take a step back, um, when, when Mueller was appointed by the DOJ, the appointment letter explicitly tasked Mueller with investigating, quote, coordination. It's a short letter. I mean, it was basically investigate coordination or conspiracy with Russia. And then the Mueller report says um, that, uh, that coordination, um, this is a direct quote here, Coordination does not have a settled definition in federal criminal law. We understood coordination to require an agreement, tacit or express. And Virginia, that's just flat out wrong. Uh, when Congress passed the 2002 statute to regulate campaign finance and, and to get rid of loopholes, it actually continued the same rules from before, from the Watergate era, um, and clarified them, right? So it, it said... The statute says um, that the campaign finance regulations, quote, shall not require agreement or formal collaboration to establish coordination. And, and then the Federal Election Commission then followed exactly that directive from Congress and said, quote, coordination means made in cooperation, consultation or concert or at the request or suggestion of a candidate, i.e., there is no requirement to show agreement. So the and and furthermore, when the Supreme Court reviewed those rules, and this is not that long ago, 2003, the Supreme Court first of all said this has been a long-standing rule from before 2002, 
And it's significant because uh, it's really important that um, expenditures, quote, made after a wink or nod often will be as useful to the candidate as cash. And so we have, keep in mind, this is the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judiciary branch saying, do not require explicit agreement because that allows loopholes. And guess what? Mueller just allowed Manafort and Rick Gates and Donald Trump to use that loophole to coordinate with Russia and with Manafort and Gates that they should have been criminally indicted for a campaign crime. And imagine if they had done that, how volume two on obstruction by Trump would have come across differently when he was covering up his campaign's felonies. That is my head is spinning. And especially this expression, wink and a nod, which I think on Twitter, uh, I said, reminded me of Michael Cohen saying, Mr. Trump talks in code. You know? <laughs> yes. And I understand that code. This was when he was talking about whether he'd been asked to lie, right? Whether perjury had been suborned. But let's just acknowledge that what volume one shows is much more than code or winks or nods. Yeah. It is direct signals. It's how can we use to get whole? Manafort's idea that maybe he could have his debts waived if he was good to Deripaska or if the campaign benefited, right? What's crazy about the Mueller report on that question is that they have Manafort, you know, nailed on coordination. And Manafort says, no, 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 I wasn't giving them the polling data to coordinate. I just thought that that that, uh, a, a Putin oligarch would waive my debts. Oh, so you mean that's a quid pro quo? Oh, sure. Then, you know, never mind. Mueller wouldn't quite say that. That was another thing he wouldn't quite say. There was certainly some frustration that Mueller, that he didn't sternly enough condemn um, the president's actions, but also even the Russians, that there was a there was sort of an absence of um, righteous indignation from him that we needed. I don't mean fireworks for the show, but just to kind of model for us what the reaction of a patriot might be to the things they found in the report. Did that bug you? Look, I came into this with low expectations. I mean, you know, I, I, I've said repeatedly, the Democrats were signaling so many times that they were taking a low risk, very low reward strategy to have Mueller simply read the report. And I just believe this was going to do nothing. And then we sh- then they show up and it, it now turns out that they arranged uh, beforehand that Mueller would not be asked to even read the report. So then, instead of having Mueller do a dramatic reading, now we have, you know, the member from the 5th District of Pennsylvania doing the reading, and then Mueller saying, correct. Um, that was even worse. I mean, talk about theater. I mean, it is actually relevant to talk about how badly the House Judiciary Committee Democrats planned the theater and then executed. It was it was really bad. You pointed out to me they stepped on each other's questions and repeated each other's questions. I mean, didn't they go back? Uh, what did they go back to over and over again? McGahn. Don McGahn. Yeah. I stopped counting at the sixth different member of Congress who spent a significant amount of time talking about Don McGahn. I mean, yeah. was that the plan? I mean, as I said before, you know, it, it's not like Mueller was actually fired. Why was Don McGahn said more in the morning session than Manafort or Roger Stone. It was a massive strategic error of fundamentally misunderstanding the report and what could have changed. I mean, I don't think a lot could have happened that would have, given what Mueller's approach was and given that they knew that approach was coming in, they should have taken a very different approach 
to highlight the crimes that they would identify. Part of what I think was effective about the afternoon was one, that Mueller what, uh, showed much more stamina and focus and command. That was, I thought, very important. But also, I think we had a new argument for impeachment that came out of the afternoon session. Um, let me also say, it was also a relief to see some number of Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee uh, take Russia seriously. So, so you know, let's 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 just say Mueller and and the Republicans, I think, gave us a glimmer that you know this that that this is um, something that people on both sides of the aisle care about. I, but you know, let's see what happens when. Uh, when we see this interference in 2020, but look, there's a there was a big moment in the second in the afternoon session where uh, Congressman Quigley asked uh, Mueller um, if the statute of limitations was going to be a problem. Because so let's be clear, the um, obstruction of justice uh, and the campaign finance questions. Those are all federal crimes and not state crimes. And the, and the statute of limitations is five years. And so Quigley said, you know, what happens if the statute of limitations runs? And it doesn't run. And Mueller said, I don't know. And then again said, you know, Mueller then, I think, you know, didn't show a tremendous amount of, of preparation on this major question. Um, and then Quigley said, it clearly runs. And then he moved on. But there are two points that come out of that. One is, it was actually Mueller's duty to speak more clearly in the report and in the testimony yesterday because of this problem. You know, uh, because a two-term president could run out the clock uh, and never face a prosecution. I mean, everyone kept asking, couldn't Trump be indicted? Couldn't a president be indicted after he left office? I'm sorry, the answer for a two-term president is no. Not on these questions from the first campaign and early in the first term, because statute of limitations run out, runs out. The OLC made a massive error on this question. It assumed that there's something called, quote, equitable tolling that allows a judge on his or her own to stop the clock out of fairness. The OLC cited no precedence for any judge actually doing that. There's a lot of dicta, but as far as I can tell, I've done research on this. The OLC has never found a precedent for, to back up this assumption, and I can't find, and others have not found, a, any precedent that allows a judge to stop the clock. And there's a good reason for that. It's, it's, it, um, it's important in civil litigation, when you have private plaintiffs with low resources, to be given a second chance if there's been fraud or if there's been some kind of unfairness and they, and they couldn't find out that, you know, this... this tort or contract problem had happened. Judges can be generous to a private plaintiff um, with limited resources when the clock uh, might, might have started running. But prosecutors have all the resources in the world. There's no excuse to just let the, you know, give prosecutors, um, you know, uh, an extension like on a, on a paper when they had all the time to do it. So when Mueller declined to bring an indictment, no judge should look at that as, as a reason why Trump as a defendant should be penalized for Mueller and the DOJ on their own having a policy. It'd be one thing if they brought an indictment and challenged it in court.
Are there other examples? Might there be other examples where someone, for whatever reason, had an immunity from prosecution? Um, I don't know what it could be. Unfitness to stand trial or they were in a coma. And so the clock stopped. Applying common law and not dicta to the presidency or not regulations yeah. to the presidency is it, it, we just <laughs> there are no precedents. There are examples of where, you know, the answer is you bring an indictment, but you delay trial. Right. So so let me give you two examples where where there is something of some latitude on this. One is sealed indictments. Right. So Mm -hmm. so the courts allow a prosecutor to bring a sealed indictment that maybe the defendant doesn't know that there's a sealed indictment. But at least what the courts say is, look, at least they made that step of coming forward, sealing an indictment. And usually what comes with that is is some real world awareness of the defendant that they were under investigation. Um, But the key thing there is a prosecutor actually went to court and filed a sealed indictment. There's also something called a superseding indictment. So you file a first Mm -hmm. indictment, you find out new charges later, courts allow a superseding indictment. But the key thing there, Virginia, is at least as a clear factual matter, prosecutors went to court and did and and indicted. Here, Mm -hmm. we have no attempt to even indict. And it would be unlikely that you'd see any judge, but I think very unlikely that you'd see this the, a, a conservative judiciary invent a new way to to make a president accountable for criminal conduct in office. I just that's not going to happen. So the big picture is that this is a new argument for impeachment because the statute of limitations might mean that not only will will a president not ever be indicted if they serve two terms, but that Mueller couldn't even make a criminal accusation in a report, that means that the only opportunity, perhaps, for any official legal accusation against a sitting president might be impeachment. And that means the Democrats, you know, well, also, let's be clear, if you want to avoid a two-term president running out the clock, one remedy in the Constitution is impeaching and removing that president so that they can't run out the clock in office. But just the act of impeachment or Virginia, even just an impeachment inquiry that lays out those accusations and then has a committee vote on on moving forward on an an inquiry or a House vote just on an inquiry, that that is the only opportunity if Trump serves two terms to ever make a legal and a formal legal accusation that Trump broke the law. I was looking at a trending hashtag last night, impeachment inquiry now. Not exactly, you know, hell no, we won't go. Yeah. Did uh, rank and file Democrats and American citizens have been reduced three months after the Mueller report yeah. detailing criminal conduct that federal prosecutors believe would end an ordinary land an ordinary citizen in handcuffs that, you know, everyone can see clear as day that there were, you know, unethical, immoral, unpatriotic acts in volume one and that there was criminal behavior in volume two that three months ago. We didn't impeach, which I've said on the show before, was Ben Franklin's alternative to assassination. Civilized people don't assassinate their leaders. They impeach them. They ask questions. It's not, it shouldn't be considered some, you know, terrifying way that we blow a hole in the Constitution. This is the remedy, impeachment. But anyway, not even that. We didn't even go to impeachment, gently removing the president from his sitting position so that he could be asked certain questions and people around him could be asked questions. And and he might and he he would make it through it probably like Clinton did. So it wasn't that was not a lot to ask. 
And now, three months later, while all this has percolated with all the deception by Barr and everything else, we're down to the point of asking for an inquiry. Let me take the other side there, because I think, first of all, an impeachment inquiry has enormous legal benefits for winning the litigation that comes next. I'll say a word about that. But let's also take a step back. I, I've been critical of Pelosi, but I think it's worthwhile. I mean, I, I think it is understandable that she is trying to balance the whole caucus and keep the House. I think she's overemphasizing the importance of keeping control of the House in 2020. But I, I, it, it, I do understand the anxiety about having a full impeachment vote. Nevertheless, an impeachment inquiry in 2019, that's a light year. I mean, that's a, you know, that is an eon, if I can use a chronological term as opposed to a distance term. It's an eon from November 2020. So just having a, a House vote on an impeachment inquiry would not subject the members of the House to the same kind of, of pressure. It's just opening up an inquiry. But let me be clear about the legal stakes. I think there's a real risk that when the House tries to get, tries to subpoena witnesses or tries to get, for example, the grand jury information unredacted from the Mueller report um, or tries to get uh, the financial records or the tax returns, they could lose all of those claims if they don't attach it to some formal impeachment inquiry. You know, if we're talking about Ravenclaw and the other other houses, I don't think I'm a political person by nature. And the idea that Democrats want to hold on to power really makes it seem like they put party over country, like we've accused so many Republicans of doing, so many sort of ordinary German Mitt Romney types of doing. And I just don't know, having never lived in Washington, how it seizes your brain so much that you can't lose your seat that you delay on holding the president accountable. I mean, I realize that the pe the people who have the luxury to talk this way are the Adam Schiff's in very blue districts. Um, and you see someone like Katie Hill. I don't know if you saw her statement last night. She thinks that Trump committed crimes. I should say she's in a purple district, leaning red, it, it, that she thinks Trump committed crimes, but she really wants to wait till the argument is ironclad against him, that they have a chance of getting it in the Senate. And that sounded exactly like Pelosi. And it's possible, I think Pelosi even uses that word ironclad, it's possible that they really are building a slow but solid case for, um, you know, really make it look like finally like it, they've dotted every I and crossed every T. And when they're ready to go, they're really ready to go. Great guns. Yeah. I'll also say I, I heard earlier today, uh, Jackie Spear, another, I think she's a California yeah. Democrat too. She was on MSNBC and she said, clearly, she said she thinks Pelosi has taken a big step towards an impeachment inquiry. One big picture point about impeachment versus the November. I mean, it is going to be much better for the country to maximize whatever chances are in November. So I, let me be clear. I think it's really, I, my view is that the politics dictate making the legal case stronger to get the tax returns, to get the financial records. Here's the problem. Um, imagine, let's just imagine that there is a, you know, party X ch in charge of the House of Representatives and they, and party X has a, has a committee chair that says, uh, you know, we want all of, uh, uh, of A, B, and C's tax returns. And it just so happens that A, B, and C's uh, are, are presidential candidates 
for um, party Y, the opposite party. We would not simply say that anytime a party is in control of the House of Representatives, they should be able to selectively and in a highly partisan, uh, um, vindictive way, release all the tax returns of just the people of the opposing party, right? So I think it's valid to say that, well, this is also in the wake. So it's, it's valid to say that before you, before courts should be allowing politicians to get subpoenas, they should require them to share their real reasons for their investigations. And so far, the, this is the legal problem. The, the litigation for the tax returns avoids talking about high crimes and misdemeanors. It's just about other things like oversight. And keep in mind, the Supreme Court just ruled in the census case, mm-hmm. Rucho, right, about um, the, the, the pretexts about the census citizenship question yes. versus the real reasons. The Supreme Court just made a major move to mm-hmm. require the executive branch to give real reasons and not pretexts. Now, it turns out the real reason was racist, right? Yes. But that's not just a, a, we have a, we have requirements, you know, our Congress people take an oath to faithfully execute and faithfully execute requires good faith. The president takes an oath to take care that the laws are faithfully executed. I think it's an enormous risk for the Democrats to go to court with subpoenas for Don McGahn or for other witnesses and for financial records and for tax returns, giving what are clearly pretextual reasons Hmm. when there's also a political reason. And so we want to be worried about uh, officials using partisan motivations that they hide with pretext. An impeachment inquiry. That is very, very, very shrewd. And I, I, I hadn't thought of it that way. And you're exactly right. And one thing that's been interesting to see happen on the Trump side has been he may have been down to a C team or a D team backbenchers, lawyers, and we're always told he can't get anyone to work for him. And now he's got to be down to some kind of W team in the form of this <laughs> yes. laughable, yes. what, countersuit or something, his team saying oh, that yes. he shouldn't have to show his taxes. Now, the, the, and the, the reason they cite this crazy tautology that Trump himself and Trumpites and his surrogates and now his legal team uses is the fact that America voted for Trump, never mind America didn't vote for Trump, but, you know, 70,000 people in uh, strategic counties voted for Trump um, and got him in office on the uh, through the Electoral College means that they think it's fine that he didn't show his taxes because <laughs> right. of the whims of the crazy na- American people, you know, who are just like in a right wing frenzy right now and and or are not, in fact, represented by the, you know, relatively small margin that Trump, the small, small margin that Trump won the election by. And also the fact that you vote for someone, meaning that you approve of their every move. And the fact that people, whimsical watchers of reality TV, approve of your moves doesn't mean that they're legal. So what's crazy is just the political language used to back, I mean, just everything being pretextual. I mean, just come on. Can't they drag out some single thing saying, you know, justifying like they couldn't justify the Muslim ban? We all knew it's a Muslim ban, but they could semi-pretend. But that was a long time ago now. But what I'm telling you is that there are smarter people who are out in the academy who are not just... Maybe Trump's lawyers wrote a bad brief, but there will be an amicus brief out there 
and yeah. it will be a valid argument. In fact, I know that I know the conservatives uh, and the rule of law people who will, in good faith, write the argument, and they will be right that members of Congress should not go to court with bad faith arguments and win. And you know what, Virginia? I might even sign that amicus brief. My guest has been Jed Sugarman. He's a professor at Fordham Law School. Thanks for joining me, Jed. Wonderful to talk to you, Virginia, as always. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Get on that awkward, redesigned, new Coke Twitter and let us know. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And while you're on a roll, go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and become a Slate Plus member. Today is your day to do it. Plus, members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. That's pogs a day. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show is produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.